0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel. For the next couple of months, we're going to consider the life of Samuel, more or less the first seven chapters of 1 Samuel. And so to that end, I'd like to read the first chapter for us this morning. And so following along in God's word, 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. There was a certain man of Ramathium Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jor-Hoam, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, But Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Hannah rose. Now, Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. Just pause for a moment. Not the real temple. The temple won't be built for another almost hundred years. This is the tabernacle. And evidently, some permanent structure surrounding the tabernacle had been erected in Shiloh. Verse 10. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. That's the Nazarite vow. Remember Samson. That's what Hannah is pledging here, to devote her son to the Lord. According to the Nazarite vow, verse 12, as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And She called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she had said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. That means at least three years of age, likely a little older. Verse 24. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three year old bull. These were the sacrifices necessary when you made a vow to the Lord. These sacrifices had to be offered. She took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. The child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed. And the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he, who's the he? It's the little boy Samuel, worshiped the Lord there. Now, as we embark on this study of the life of Samuel, the first seven chapters of 1 Samuel, we need to begin with four questions to set the stage. Help us enter into the book. The fourth question will bring us to the narrative. It will bring us to the chapter uh, we've just read before the Lord, this Lord's Day. Uh, Question number one is this. What do we know about the author? Absolutely nothing. We don't know anything about the author of 1 and 2 Samuel. Uh, Samuel didn't write these books. The books are named after him Because he is the first of three main central characters. Samuel, Saul, David. Those three men are 1st and 2nd Samuel. Samuel is the first main character. He subsequently anointed both Saul and David. But we actually read of Samuel's death in chapter 25 of 1st Samuel. So evidently he's not the author of 1st Samuel or 2nd Samuel. We don't know who the author is. So there's a very simple answer to question number one. Question number two, what do we know about the context, the book's context? This is interesting, and this is important. In our Old Testament, as we have it here in our Bibles, the order of the books is this, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel. In the ancient Hebrew scriptures, please hear this carefully, the books are the same. There is no difference between the Hebrew scriptures of centuries gone by and the scriptures we have today in the Old Testament. The only difference is this, the order in which they are arranged. In the Hebrew scriptures, in ancient times, the order was this, Judges, for Samuel. Why? They are to be read and understood together. Israel enters the promised land under the leadership of Joshua somewhere around the year 1350 B.C. Joshua is the leader during that period, at that time of conquest. When Joshua dies, his death ushers in one of the most tumultuous periods in the history of the nation of Israel. The days of the judges. Gideon. Jephthah, Samson, and the rest. How does the book of Judges end? In those days, there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. You keep reading in the Hebrew Scriptures, and what's the very next thing you read? There was a certain man of Ramathiam, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim. That's the context. Samuel is the last Of these judges. He is the last in this this long order, this intervening period of more or less 300 years. He is going to anoint Saul as king in the year 1050 BC. And so, for 300 years, the initial 300 years of Israel's occupancy of the land, uh, there is no king. There are these judges, and there is this cycle of despair and sin and rebellion, summarized in that statement, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It was a day of moral depravity. It was a day of social decay. It was a day of political anarchy, and it was a day of religious idolatry. That is the context for 1 Samuel. The third question is this, what do we know about the theme? The book's theme was well, very simple. First Samuel and Second Samuel, they record for us what? The emergence of the monarchy within Israel. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. The prevalency of that continues through the reign of man's king, Saul. But we see it checked. We see national blessing. We see the outpouring of God's spirit when God's king, David, is on the throne. That is the theme of these two books, the emergence of the monarchy in Israel. In presenting to us that theme, these books prophetically point to one who is even greater than David because the world has been in chaos ever since the fall. And the world, ever since the fall, if it has needed anything, it has needed a king. And that king is the Lord Jesus Christ. So these books record for us the emergence of the monarchy. But even in recording the emergence and that climax in David's reign, it points to something far greater. The Christ who is coming, the Messiah who is coming, the King of kings and the Lord of lords who is coming. Now the fourth question is this. How should we read this book? How are we supposed to read it? Uh, what are we supposed to get out of 1 Samuel? We can we can actually we can actually enlarge the question uh, to this: How are we supposed to read the Old Testament, of which this is part? You know, I sit down and, I, and I'm doing my devotions and. Uh, You know, this week and next I'm in the book of Genesis or uh, Joshua or 1 Samuel or Ezra and I'm reading this and it's all rather interesting. What am I supposed to get out of this? Uh, How am I supposed to interpret this? Now listen carefully to these words. The New Testament tells us, the New Testament tells us that whenever we pick up the Old Testament, whenever we read the Old Testament, we should be looking for four things. Looking. Searching, run a treasure hunt, looking for four things. These four things are going to be prevalent as we make our way through the life of Samuel. At times, I'm going to emphasize one. At times, I might emphasize several. Today, I'm going to emphasize all four because we see all four in 1 Samuel. It applies not only to 1 Samuel. I I hope we understand this. And I hope this in and of itself is of great spiritual benefit and reward to you as you read the Old Testament. Look for these four things. Firstly, we should be looking when we read the Old Testament for examples that instruct us. That's one of the things we should be looking for. We should look for examples that instruct us. And so Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, These things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. He adds, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. What's he talking about? He's referring to Israel's wandering in the wilderness. And he's referring to the immorality and the idolatry into which Israel fell during that period in its history. And Paul is saying, look, yes, those are historical events. Yes, they really happened. But get this. They were actually written down for us. They were penned for our instruction. That we can look at the example of the nation of Israel and not desire evil as they desired it. And that principle holds true for the entire Old Testament. Whenever we pick up the Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi, we should be looking for examples that instruct us. And we find these examples in 1 Samuel chapter 1. There are four. Actually, there are more. I'm only going to stress four. First, in 1 Samuel chapter 1, we see the example of a resolute faith. Look at the third verse. Now, this man, that's Elkanah, used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. Where did he go? Shiloh. Shiloh is located 15, 20 miles north of Jerusalem, Ramah. Elkanah's town is located, I think, maybe about five miles north of Jerusalem. Shiloh, another 10, 15 miles north of Ramah. And Elkanah used to go to Shiloh. Why? The tabernacle has been there since the days of Joshua. It is the place of God's dwelling among his people. That's where he goes. When does he go? The text tells us, year by year, annually. Why? Because according to the law, All adult males had to appear, they were required to appear at the tabernacle to celebrate certain annual feasts. Why does he go? He used to go up year by year from his city to do what? Why? To worship and to sacrifice. Notice this next phrase, to the Lord, that's Yahweh, Jehovah, to the Lord of hosts. What's the context, brothers and sisters? It is the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes, not Helkanah. Year by year, annually, as required under the law, he went up to Shiloh, the tabernacle, and he went for one determined purpose, to sacrifice and to worship the Lord of Hosts. Now, the, the, the author, whoever he was of this book, really drives this point home, this example of a resolute faith. He does so by the, by the final detail he includes toward the end of verse 3, where, that is at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. Well, that isn't so significant. Yes, it is in light of what's coming in chapter 2. Because in chapter 2, we're going to learn that these priests are worthless men. So please understand this. The situation in the nation of Israel is so deplorable. It is so despicable. Chaos is so prevalent that even the priesthood itself is corrupt. And yet in the midst of the chaos, Alcana, this man, used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. That's an example for our instruction. That is an example for us to follow. Let me state it to you clearly by way of a question. As we live in days that in many respects are not all that different from Elkanah's days, will we conform to the chaos, or will we worship the Lord of hosts? There's an example to follow, right? An example to emulate, the example of a resolute faith. Let me give you a second example that instructs us. We see in this chapter the example of a disastrous choice. Elkanah is a godly man, but Elkanah is not a perfect man. Look at what we read in verse 2. He had two wives right there. Falls in the sin of his forefathers. Abraham made this mistake. Jacob made this mistake. After Elkanah, David himself is going to make this mistake. Solomon is going to take it to a whole new level. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children, down to verse 6. And her rival used to provoke her grievously. That is, Peninnah used to provoke Hannah grievously to irritate her. Because the Lord had closed her womb. We see the example of a disastrous choice. Very significant, very significant that in the second verse of the two women, who is mentioned first? Hannah. Why? Because Hannah is his first wife. And so Elkanah, young man, finds, finds a, a bride. He's in love with her. And they marry Several years into the marriage, one of the worst conceivable things happens for them, especially in that day and age, uh, Hannah can't bear children. Uh, Hannah is, is barren. They're unable to conceive. At that moment, Elkanah is faced with a choice, and he blows it. He blows it. Pragmatism perhaps got the better of him. Expediency perhaps got the better of him. But what does he do? He takes a second wife. Why? He needs sons. His sons are his posterity. And so he marries Peninnah. What happens? Here you have this home. On the one hand, you have Hannah, who is, who is gripped, who is consumed with her inability to conceive. On the other hand, you have Peninnah, who is consumed with her inability to win her husband's affection. Each wants what the other has. And Alcana is stuck there right in the middle. Brothers and sisters, that is an example that instructs us. Uh, We don't go in for polygamy today, praise God. But it instructs us in many other ways, does it not? Let me give you a couple of examples. First is this, a sin against God's design. Christian, this applies to us. A sin against God's design always has consequences. At the very least, guilt and grief. A sin against God's design always has consequences. The second lesson is this. When we disobey God's will for pragmatic reasons, in other words, when we disobey what God reveals, when we disobey, ignore what we know God wants, expects of us, in order to get out of a difficult situation, which is what Elkanah does in taking Penanah for a wife, And so when for expedience's sake, because the affliction is heavy, the burden is more than we can bear, we see a way of escape, but that escape involves disobeying what God has revealed in his word. I will guarantee you, we will bring nothing upon ourselves but additional trouble and difficulty and affliction and grief and sorrow. That's an example, isn't it? That is an example in this text that instructs us. Let me give you a third one. We see in this chapter the example of a tender husband. Verse 5. But to Hannah, so they're at Shiloh making their sacrifices. And from this sacrifice, Elkanah gives the portion to Peninnah and her children. But, there's a contrast in verse 5. To Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her. Though the Lord had closed her womb. Verse 8. And Elkanah, her husband... Said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? She's distraught, right? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you, my love, my affection? Am I not more to you than ten sons? So here we catch a glimpse of a very affectionate man, do we not? Uh, this is this is stark. It really is. Remember the day in which Alcana lives. He lives in a day in which his entire name, his heritage, his posterity is tied to his sons. He marries a woman who can't give him a son. He marries a woman who cannot conceive. He marries a woman who is barren. But Alcana never holds this against her. We see his tenderness in how he treats her, his deeds in verse 5. We see his tenderness in his words in verse 8. And there we have a wonderful example, doing not, of a husband who loves his wife, not out of what he gets from her, but she is the object of his affection, the object of his devotion, the object of his tenderness. That's an example that instructs us. It reminds us, doesn't it? Doesn't it? That husbands and wives, we become what before the Lord? One flesh. And the Apostle Paul himself declares what? No one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it and he cherishes it. There's an example, an example for us that instructs us and that we must follow. And Let me give you one more. There are additional examples. You read this on your own. You'll find them. Let me give you a fourth one, very important. We have in this chapter the example of a devout mother. Verse 11. Actually, verse 10. She, that is Hannah, was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord. Hannah's inability to conceive does not drive her to bitterness. It drives her to her knees. It drives her to prayer. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to you as your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Hannah prays. She prays sorrowfully, doesn't she? That comes out in verse 10. Her prayer arises from her deep distress. She prays specifically. Verse 11, she asks for a son. She prays solemnly. Her prayer is accompanied with a vow that this son will be yours, the Nazarite vow. She prays silently. Verse 12, As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Now understand this, friends. Hannah in praying is not motivated or is not desirous of getting back at Peninnah. That's not what's going on here. She is not motivated by vengeance. She's not trying to manipulate Elkanah. She is not trying to bribe God. What becomes evident in her prayer here in chapter 1 and abundantly clear in the prayer of praise that's coming in chapter 2 is that this is a woman driven by the glory of God. Her desire for a child is not an expression of selfishness, her desire for a child is not the expression of a, of, of, a, of a desperate woman looking to capture her husband's affection and keep the marriage together. Her desire to have a child is not a woman wanting to get back at her, at her enemy, Peninnah, who has caused her so much grief. Her prayer is not her attempt to, kind, to try to manipulate, well, if God, if you do this, I'll do that and we'll see how it goes. No, this is a woman who is concerned with the glory of God. And this is a woman... Now hear this. This is a woman whose aspirations for this son, Samuel, are limitless because they are tied to the glory of God. Now that is a lesson that, an example, instructs us. That is an example to be followed. Far too often, mothers and fathers, we fall to the same sin far too often. Our aspirations for our children are limited because they're merely defined in terms of earthly success. She she was a woman of God. She was a woman consumed with the glory of God. And she was a woman who, out of her deep sorrow and distress of heart, prayed silently before God with God's glory in view for a son. And God, with his own glory in view, responded. Four examples. As we read the Old Testament, as we read first Samuel, examples that instruct us, a resolute faith, a disastrous choice, a tender husband, and a devout mother. Fair enough. Secondly, when we turn to the Old Testament and we make our way through First Samuel chapter one, which is our, our text this day. We should be looking for truths that not only instruct us, we should look for truths that encourage us. Where do I get that from? Listen to what Paul says in Romans 15. Whatever was written in former days, that's the Old Testament. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So when I pick up the Old Testament, I turn to the book of Joel. When I pick up the Old Testament and read Haggai, or I read First and Second Chronicles, or I read the book of Job, or I read First Samuel, I am to be searching, I am to be looking for truths. Yes, truths that instruct me by way of example. But secondly, truths that instruct me by way of encouragement. Because as I read the Old Testament, I see my God in action. I see the wondrous work, His wondrous works of providence. I see His governance over all things. I behold His faithfulness to His promises. And as I see my God in action, as I see His plan of redemption unfolding, these truths concerning the very nature of God and the work of God, I take them to heart. They strengthen me. They enable me to endure. And they enlarge my so we just read 1 Samuel. What do we see here? What truths do we find here that encourage us? Well, I find four. Keep this nice and even, four. I actually find more, but I'm going to limit it to four. First is this. We see the truth that God is the Lord of hosts. Verse 3. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts. Verse 11, now it's Hannah praying. She vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts. What's, 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 the, what's the big deal? It's the first time this title is mentioned in Scripture. That's a big deal. It's a huge deal. The Lord of hosts. What's the context? It's the days of the judges. What are those days marked by? Social decay, moral depravity, political anarchy, religious idolatry. And if Israel has learned anything in its 300-year history, its 300-year experience in the land of Canaan, it is this. Its hosts are few, while its enemies' hosts are many. Amorites, Ammonites, Moabites, Philistines and the list goes on and on and on. They are surrounded, overrun time and time again by their enemy. And Elkanah knows this to be true. Hannah knows this to be true. Their God is the Lord of hosts, the heavenly hosts and the earthly hosts. Daniel four thirty five. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. That is a truth that encourages me. The second truth that encourages me is this. God closes and opens the womb. It's stated in verse 5. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her. Though the Lord had closed her womb. It's repeated for emphasis in verse 6 and her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. When we come finally to verses 19 through 21, what do we discover? It is the Lord who opens the womb. That is a truth that encourages me. God closes and opens the womb. I'll get to the encouragement in just a moment, but let me just just suggest that we ought to derive an additional truth from this wonderful reality that God opens and closes the womb. Um, This is the day of the sanctity of human life. Did you know that? Um, President Reagan, 1984, issued a proclamation. Uh, He he issued it annually that the Sunday in January, closest to the 22nd, would be set aside as the celebration, the sanctity of human life. Uh, President uh, Bush, Sr., continued the practice, President Clinton never mentioned it. President Bush Jr. reinstituted it. President Obama has never mentioned it. This truth ends the abortion debate. It ends it. There is no debate. There is nothing to talk about. God opens and closes the womb. And therefore, life, human life, from the moment of conception is endowed... With dignity and sanctity. Amen. This truth teaches me that. Teaches me that. By way of encouragement. By way of encouragement. It points to God's sovereign rule, doesn't it? Uh, Abraham and Abraham and Sarah. Isaac and Rebekah. Jacob and Rachel. Manoah and his wife, who isn't mentioned. That's Samson's parents. Elkanah and Hannah. Zechariah and Elizabeth. There might be others. Those are the ones I can recall. They all had something in common, didn't they? These couples all had something in common. They could not conceive until God worked miraculously. Here's what I want you to get. And when God did work miraculously, these couples became the parents of patriarchs, of judges, and of prophets. That encourages me. It encourages me to know that God opens and closes the womb. And he does so in accordance with his sovereign rule. The third truth I see in 1 Samuel 1 that encourages me is this. God remembers. God remembers. That comes out in verse 19. They rose early in the morning. So that's Elkanah and Hannah at the very least. Worship before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. We read very, something very similar in regards to, to Rachel. We read that God remembered Rachel and listened to her and opened her womb. So Hannah and Rachel, they they share a number of things in common. Both are barren, both cry out to the Lord, both pray for a son, and the Lord remembers them. When we read in Scripture that the Lord remembers, that does not mean God has forgotten them. Uh, To to, to think that, that God all of a sudden in a moment of time said, Oh yes, Rachel, I now remember her. That's blasphemy. That's not what's going on here. When we read in scripture that God remembered Rachel, God remembered Hannah, it is an expression of his tender affection toward his people and his decision to bestow favor upon them. Zion cries, this is recorded in Isaiah 49, the Lord has forsaken me, my Lord has forgotten me. That's often our cry in the midst of affliction, isn't it? I know it's my cry in the midst of trouble. The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Though To which the Lord responds. Can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb. Even these may forget. Yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. That is the Almighty speaking to his people. I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. What does that mean? Now we're into the realm of anthropomorphism here, right? God doesn't literally have hands. This is human language to help us enter in and understand his tender affection for us. But it means this, keeping with the anthropomorphism of God's hands. God cannot look at his hands without thinking of his people. And his hands point to what? security, that his people rest, they're marked, they're engraved on the palms of his hands. And he cannot and will not forget his people. That's a truth that encourages me. Let me give you a fourth truth that encourages me. It's as follows. God accomplishes great things from small beginnings. God accomplishes great things from small beginnings. What is Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim? Insignificant city. Who is Elkanah in the grand scheme of things? Who is Hannah in the grand scheme of things? And what little good, what good could possibly come from this little boy, Samuel? God accomplishes great things from small beginnings. Through Samuel... God is going to bring the nation of Israel to repentance. He is going to bring spiritual renewal and revival. Through Samuel, God is going to deliver his people from their enemies, the Philistines. Through Samuel, God is going to anoint Saul and then David, the king of Israel. Through Samuel. God is going to prepare the way for the eventual advent of the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So we have an idolatrous nation. We have an insignificant city. We have an unimportant man. We have a barren woman. We have a useless priest, Eli. We have a silent prayer. And then we have a God who works wonders. That encourages me. It encourages me to no end. God accomplishes great things from small beginnings. Those are but examples. Did you get those four? God is the Lord of hosts. God closes and opens the womb. God remembers. And God accomplishes great things from small beginnings. When we read the Old Testament and when we read 1 Samuel, we should be looking for truths that encourage us. Thirdly, when we pick up the Old Testament, we should be looking for the Christ. Christ. The Lord Jesus tells us that. John five thirty nine. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. And so whenever we pick up the Old Testament, and now as we pick up 1 Samuel and we read it, we should be on the lookout for whom? The Lord Jesus Christ. The theme of the Old Testament is Christ. There isn't a page in the Old Testament we can't find Christ. What was the story of Jonah and the whale all about? What does Christ say? As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so too the Son of Man shall be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. What was the story, the story about Moses and the, remember that serpent in the wilderness? God sends those serpents to, to, to plague the Israelites because of their sin and idolatry. And then that brass sermon, serpent is erected that people could look at and be healed. What was that all about? What does the Lord Jesus say? As the, Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that all who believe on him will have eternal life. Everything in the Old Testament has the same theme, the same subject, the same object. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Samuel 1 is no different. We read these 28 verses, and we should be looking for Christ. And we find him, don't we? We find him in this miraculous birth. Isaac's birth was miraculous. Jacob's birth was miraculous. Joseph's birth was miraculous. Samson's birth was miraculous. Now Samuel's birth is miraculous. Why? They are there in order to create a sense of anticipation. They are there in order to point us back all the way to the original promise concerning the seed of the woman. They are there to point us, to create in us this sense of urgency, this sense of expectancy that God has promised. And here we have instances of it, but just just this foreshadowing of it. God has promised to intervene in the history of humanity. God has promised to come down and walk among men. God has promised to redeem us and save us through the seed of the woman. And all of these miraculous births throughout the Old Testament point to the most miraculous birth. When the Most High, the superlative in the Greek, the Most High overshadowed Mary, so that what was conceived in her apart from any man should be called what? Holy. The Son of God. Samuel's birth gets us ready for that. Samuel's birth heightens our anticipation for that. That in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have the Most High, revealing himself, walking among men. That in Christ, we have creator and creature, strength and weakness, authority and futility, immutability and mutability, independence and dependence. In Christ, we have the infinite and the finite. O fairest Lord Jesus, Ruler of all nature. O oh, thou of God and man the Son, thee will I cherish, Thee will I honor, Thou my soul's glory, joy, and crown. The Old Testament gets us ready for him. And the Old Testament points repeatedly to the Lord Jesus Christ. And now fourthly, as we turn to 1 Samuel, we should be looking for what? The gospel. This should sound familiar to many of us who have been here the past few Sundays as we wrapped up our study at 2 Timothy. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3.15, From childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, that's the Old Testament, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And so as we read the Old Testament, as we now study 1 Samuel 1 through 7, we should be expecting to find, expecting to see, expecting to hear, what? The gospel. That which makes us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Remember the context. The context is the very last verse of the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In the midst of the anarchy. In the midst of the chaos, God raises up a deliverer, Samuel. And it is through this man, this priest and this prophet, Samuel, that God is going to deliver his people, his, na- his nation, from their enemies, the Philistines. Do you see the parallel? Samuel is a Christ figure. That just as Samuel was raised up by God to deliver Israel From their enemies, the Philistines. So too, God has sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver his people from their enemies. And as we think of the cross, and as we think of the gospel, we behold our great deliverer hanging there, do we not? And as we think of his deliverance of us from sin, we celebrate the fact that firstly he became sin for us. That at Calvary's cross, God imputed to the Lord Jesus Christ. He reckoned to Christ our sin. He he wasn't stained with our sin. No, he bore the guilt of our sin. And we behold him there and understand, secondly, that at Calvary's cross, he bore the penalty for our sin. And so God condemned him so that we might be justified. God punished him. So that we might be pardoned. God wounded him so that we might be healed. God cursed him so that we might be blessed. God forsook him so that we might be accepted. God judged him so that we might be delivered. Or, as one of the old authors put it, mine is the sin, but thine the righteousness. Mine is the guilt but thine the cleansing blood. Here is my robe, my refuge, and my peace. Thy blood, thy righteousness, O Lord, my God. Our Heavenly Father, as we pause together now, we do pray your richest blessing upon all that we have considered, all that has been declared from your word. We praise you for Christ's blood, by which we are redeemed, by which we are cleansed, by which we are forgiven. We praise you for Christ's righteousness, by which we are justified, by which we are clothed, by which we are accepted. His blood, his righteousness, O Lord, our God, accept the praise we bring in his most holy name. Amen.